Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we talk a little bit about Jimmy Buffett and then ramble through some thoughts on what to do with the stocks that are down in your portfolio. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed. And please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host Dan Maseka. Dan, it's another week. It is another week. You spent the weekend, or at least one night of the weekend, uh, in Margaritaville, if I'm to understand that correctly. Oh, Ross, I spent a lot of time in Margaritaville. But yes, this weekend in particular, I had a show with my Jimmy Buffett tribute band that I'm a part of called One Particular Harbor, where we performed a set in tribute to the great Jimmy Buffett uh, at a uh, farm brewery located out here in Maryland. So it was a good time. It was our second show together. Uh, We had a pretty sizable crowd out for the event. I make no secret of the fact that I have not historically been and and still wouldn't call myself a fan of Jimmy Buffett's music, but I definitely enjoy playing with those people. And the people who come to hear Jimmy Buffett's music are there for a good time, which makes it a good time for playing as well. I think that's my favorite fact about it is that you're not like a big Jimmy Buffett guy, but you're in this band learning basically almost... I'd assume his whole catalog of music to be able to play a full show. I mean, he he's put out a lot of hits over the years, so it's probably more hits focused than anything. But I think you guys played a pretty long set. Yeah, it's like we, we probably know 30 songs at this point. So in my mind, I know a lot of Jimmy Buffett music now. When I entered the band, I knew one song. Uh, and I was vinyl shopping the other day. I, I love buying records. And I found a Jimmy Buffett album and I picked it up and looked through the back. I knew one song on the album, even after having learned all of these songs from his catalog. And uh, it just makes me wonder what the songs I don't know sound like. Oh, wow. So you're still just scratching the surface on Jimmy Buffett. Apparently, I'm just scratching the surface. But for any of those guitar players out there, every song is the same. They're, They're the same three chords in different orders, which almost makes it harder to keep track of, especially if I haven't been, you know, listening to his music growing up. I think it's funny that you and I both have kind of a weird connection to Jimmy Buffett. So in college, I worked in a Jimmy Buffett-themed restaurant called Cheeseburger in Paradise down in Newport News, where I also developed a slight hatred for Jimmy Buffett's music, not because I didn't like it, but because it just got completely beaten into my head. That restaurant would literally play the song Cheeseburger in Paradise every hour on the hour. Anybody that's worked in that type of environment is going to eventually hate the song. It just it just d- won't make you happy at that point. I've finally kind of come back to the point where I can enjoy his music again. I think about that often. The people who work in a retail environment where the music must be on a loop. I don't know this is the case, but like Starbucks or an Abercrombie or something where I'm sure they have a very well curated playlist of what they want people to hear while they're in the store and just the employees who are there for eight, nine hours, whatever it may be, just learning to hate those songs very slowly. It used to be just a CD. So like back in the, when I worked in retail, because I started working in retail when I was like 16, they would send us a CD a month, which I think, what's a CD hold? 70 minutes of content. So it was like just over an hour and it would loop basically every hour. And so for the whole month, you would listen to that. And of course they send like the holiday CD in like 
the end of October. So you spend like two months listening to like Christmas songs and that that sort of thing. So yeah, it got very, very painful, that repetition. I would not sign up for that. At le- hopefully now with these, everything in a digital library, it's better. I'm going to assume it is. Uh, if it's not, then then people need to do better. We need to improve the system. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's gotten better. Well, that's not, I'm sure, what people tuned in to hear us talk about today, uh, given that we're a personal finance podcast and we have spent the intro of the show talking about Jimmy Buffett. So let's talk about something even less fun, which is the stock market. Yeah, it has not been a great start to the year for the stock market. You've got to go back 51 years to find another year that started as ugly as 2022 has. It was 1970 is the last time we had a, a year that started this bad. And that's for the S&P's returns, right? Correct. Uh, yeah, you, Dan, so you sent me an article, uh, and I had to actually dig for who, who read, uh, wrote this, excuse me, but this was on Seeking Alpha. And the, the app, Economy Insights, is the account that's being run. But if you dig in, uh, it looks like the guy's name is Bertrand Seguin. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly, but he wrote an article about how to handle big losers. And I, that kind of inspired us to think about you know our framework for how to talk about, how to think about losing positions in a portfolio. Uh, and I thought that it might be a nice jumping off point for us today. To put things in context, if you're not an individual stock investor, you may not know what big losses we're talking about here. But it is not crazy if you own a portfolio of growth stocks to see companies down 60, 70, 80%. Like Those numbers are crazy, but that is what people are experiencing in some very household names, things that are commonplace for most folks. You know, the first thing that it reminded me of just broadly is the framework that the stock market doesn't make good long-term returns despite the risk. It makes good long-term returns because of the risk, right? The the very fact that we're going through this pain right now and that this sort of thing scares a lot of investors off over time is the opportunity. If it worked like clockwork, if you could simply put money into the stock market and make 7 to 9% annually, and there was never a down year, and there was never a scary period, and there were never questions of, is this going to work moving forward? Everybody would have every dollar in it, right? Like literally, there would be no use for savings accounts. Every dollar of free capital would flow into the stock market, and all of the opportunity would be lost, right? The, the risk premium that is derived from stock investing would be gone because it would attract too much capital if that was a risk-free return, right? There would simply be no reason to do anything else. Uh, and so I, th- I like to remind myself of that fact is this is the, uh, as Morgan Housel puts it, uh, and this gets quoted in the article we read, this is the price of entry. Dealing with a start to the year like this, dealing with stocks that are getting their butts kicked, this is the price of entry for ultimately having good returns in the future. That's how we have to look at this. That's how we have to frame it is that we're paying the entry price right now. Right. And and the other thing I like that that really was eye-opening for me because I've never seen these numbers laid out through research like this, but the author cites another research piece from uh someone over at Blackstar Funds, Meb Faber, who took a look at 8,000 stocks that were trading on the New York Stock Exchange, the Nasdaq over a 23-year period from 83 to 2006 and looked at kind of the distribution of returns of those individual companies. Because if you're an index investor, you're seeing kind of the sum total of their performance and and not even in equal weighted 
performance total, right? They're oftentimes cap weighted or some other form where you're seeing the large companies contributing more. But he did a research for each individual company to see how that business performed relative to the broad market index. And the most fascinating thing I saw was two out of every five stocks that he looked at. So 40% of those 8,000 companies were money losing investments. So if you took a random sample of of those companies, 40% of those companies would have lost money over the long run. That was a pretty shocking number to see. Yeah, that's a that's a big number. What we have to take away from that, the the real story is that how few of the stocks in the market ultimately drive returns, right? And over the last decade for sure, those have been some pretty household names, uh, I think, right? I mean, we when we think about the biggest names in the S&P 500, those are all stocks that people are aware of and in some ways I get the sense that people um think of them as too obvious. Right, like if if you go out and you tell somebody to buy like the top five stocks in the S and P five hundred, they're kind of like, yeah, whatever, and and you know, but what's next, right? What's going to be the next biggest stock in the S and P five hundred? You're like, all right, well, if I if I knew that, I promise you, I'd have a bigger office, right? Like let, let's let's be honest about that. Anybody that tells you they know that is making stuff up, right? To say something's going to be a good opportunity, to say something is exciting, and there's a big total addressable market. That's all fine and well. But to say you know who's going to become the next Apple, you you sure don't. Right. So by the same research, he finds that about one out of every 20 stocks. So despite that staggering number of companies that lose money, they just decimate value over time. One out of 20 stocks will outperform the index by 500% or more in the research that they've looked at. Now, those mega huge companies that you're referring to didn't just start there. They grew there. And I think that's also interesting too, which is why you diversify because you don't know which one it's going to be, but one of those stocks might have this incredible performance ahead of it that's going to grow and compound to being one of those powerhouses that's going to derive the return in your portfolio for perhaps years or decades to come. Yeah, it's interesting. And so you know, if you're looking at a portfolio today that's got some big losers in it on a, on a percentage basis, one of the things that I've always found a little bit beautiful about stock investing, uh, particularly in this type of context, is that the worse your losers are doing, the less of a problem they're becoming, right? Like in your mind, the, the amount of capital you've lost could be uh, increasingly painful. And if you're looking at that and you're kind of stressing over it, you know that may be telling you something in it in itself. But Essentially, if you're down 60, 70, 80% and you're not adding capital to these names, the likelihood is that it's becoming a lesser and lesser portion of your portfolio unless everything else is dropping at the exact same rate. And it's becoming a lesser problem for you. Uh, and, and so in many ways, kind of as you're thinking about that conviction weighting, some of that's going to take care of itself. Now, uh, we've talked a lot on our show about not letting the movements in the market constantly dictate your allocation, right? I've, I've advocated that people go through an exercise where they rank their conviction and decide whether or not their portfolio currently matches that. But again, I do think that that's going to drive it a little bit where you're going to say, all right, I've lost a bunch of money here. And now it's such an immaterial part of my portfolio that, that maybe it's not even worth spending your time worrying about. Um, and I think that that is uh, a, a critical observation to make is, you know, should you cut bait and just get out because it's become such a small part? 
Or do you just not spend any of that mental energy on the position because it's become such a small part? Both of those, I think, are, are okay responses there. It's been an interesting dynamic lately, personally, as I'm looking at a lot of businesses that we own in our portfolio, because we talk to a lot of folks during these market pullbacks and say, just don't look at your account every day, right? Don't worry yourself because it's not a day-to-day thing that you're tracking. We're looking at accomplishing things years into the future. So don't look at your balances. Don't look at the portfolio. I subscribe to that mentality. Why do I want to sign up for a headache every time I log into my account and we're in a massive market pullback? But then when I'm looking at the individual positions, because it's a key part of our job to do research, and I see that a stock has maybe fallen off so much further from from where it was the day before, it feels painful because I don't see the relative position size within my account, which is just a funny thing to remind myself that you know if this has been falling for months, this drop today doesn't really matter. So, you know, the, the, he does offer a few strategies for for kind of how to deal with some of this. But before we get into that, I want to switch slightly to another article uh, that I read that I think is um, equally powerful if you're thinking through this set of problems, right? If you're if you're in this mode where you're kind of looking at your portfolio going, what do I do? This is a an important data point. So We've talked about Aswath Damodaran, who's a NYU uh, professor that teaches on valuation and other finance topics. And he posts regularly. One of the things that he references is called the equity risk premium, which is how much should you earn as an equity investor versus not being an equity investor? And that the market is now pricing in an equity risk premium that is meaningfully higher today than it was even at the start of the year. So the implied equity risk premium on January 1st of this year, he states at 4.24, right? So you'd get a 4% bump from owning a risk asset versus a non-risk asset, but that that is now at 6%. So future looking stock returns based on his modeling and his research are now at 9% annually up from the almost 6% at the start of the year. Uh, right. So two things go into that stock return. One is the risk-free rate, which is kind of the interest rate, the treasury rate that's gone up as well, and the equity risk premium. So that that's a little technical to unpack for a podcast, but that is meaningful because I think we've been talking for a while saying, you know, in financial planning projections, in stock market projections, like don't use the last decade as kind of your benchmark. You shouldn't be assuming... 12, 13% annualized returns, right? I still think that that's true. But the pullback that we've seen now implies that forward-looking returns should be better than they were just the six months ago. That, of course, makes intuitive sense when you say, yeah, if if they were right six months ago and we've pulled back from there, then it has to be higher. But I, I think that that is a very helpful framework if you're kind of thinking, you know, is my assumption about the stock market broken? Like, I don't think so. I I think the forward-looking projections are still fairly consistent and that we can be more bullish on the next 5, 10 plus years as a result of the pullback that we've seen. Um, And and so I think that that's also relevant to how people should be thinking about their portfolios today. Which I think is a nice transition to some of the things that this article on Seeking Alpha suggests you do kind of in evaluating your your losing positions. And a lot of this ties in nicely to the types of themes we saw in the book, The Scout Mindset. Actually, this is a, a list from Brad Slingerland of NZS Capital and his six steps to, to gaining perspective 
kind of as you're looking at a, a stock that's gone down a lot. And the first, I think we've said this before, is assume that you don't own the stock. So try to disassociate from the investment and pretend you're looking at it fresh for the first time. How would you look at it if this weren't already a part of your portfolio? Would you be excited about owning it or would you stay away from it? I think sometimes it's almost important to visualize somebody else takes your portfolio to cash for you, right? Like there's a glitch at the broker. You own cash today. You've got a shopping spree ahead of you. What are you going to go out and buy, right? Because if it's not the list of stuff that you own, that's telling you something. It's very, very important that your shopping list looks very similar to your ownership list. Because if, if it's not, I think you've got to recognize the mismatch there and that you're being anchored to a decision that you've already made. I mean, you, you just are. You're being anchored to that decision if you only own it because you already own it. Right. And, and before we started recording, we mentioned not only the binary choice of should you own it or not own it, but how much should you own? You were mentioning the perspective situation of someone having a huge position in a stock or a category of assets and would they buy it in the same percentage today? Like that's an important question too. Now with everything going down, it's probably a different situation than everything having gone up and having it having to make that decision, but still relevant. The other thing that they point out is the difference between batting average and slugging percentage. I think that's such a critical thing. And um, we reference the Motley Fool a lot because it's in our our lineage and, and our history here. Uh, but I very much used to think about this a lot with the Motley Fool investing. Is you know somebody like a David Gardner who has tended to be more on the growth stock and kind of the really big, innovative ideas sort of uh, investing. I think of him as a slugger, right? Like he's the type of investor that I think is going to strike out a lot. I think he's going to have more massive losers on his scorecard, but the percentage of uh, the the number of like grand slam home runs that he has completely outweighs it, and and so diversification and position sizing becomes like so incredibly important uh, if you're investing that way to not load up really heavy at the outset on that type of name. Right. If you're talking about emerging industries, if you're talking about unprofitable tech, which the market has just murdered so far this year, right? That those have to be smaller position sizes because you're just going to need more of them. Whereas if you're kind of worried about your batting average and trying to reduce your number of strikeouts, you're going to generally, you should be looking for, in my opinion, more profitable companies with kind of steady cash flow growth, big total addressable market. But you're going to be looking for businesses that are already winning. And then you can worry more so about that batting average than is this going to be a market scorching return, but just something that is very competitive uh, and is going to grow along the way. And that goes into knowing your goals too. So make sure you're investing for your plans and not just defaulting into investment plan because you heard someone else did well with it, which over the last couple of years, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people chasing you know, these crazy strategies because they heard someone else made crazy money in the crypto market or crazy money with these tiny, tiny growth stocks. And right, if, you're, if you don't have the stomach for that and aren't willing to accept the downside, you should probably stay away from it. I hate that I think this way, but this this comes up for me. Uh, and, and it came up, you know, you, you heard about in, in the, the tech bubble bursting, right, that you were getting like cabby, like cab drivers and stuff with stock tips, right? Like there were just like all of these people that didn't participate in the markets in an average year that suddenly were like into it, 
right? And that very much is what the meme stock craze felt like to me. And in one sense, I really want a new wave of investors, right? I, I deeply want people to be market participants and to become part of the system and learning how to invest. But when you watch stuff like some of these meme stocks and how people were treating the market as a game and, and probably out of boredom from the lockdowns and everything else that was going down, that completely changes how people are chasing returns and how they're behaving. And that's going to really change the market dynamics. I think you're seeing some of that get flushed back out at this point, if not almost entirely, because it's been so painful. And and. I my hope is that those aren't people that never come back to the market and and assume that this is a scam, right? That they learn to be disciplined, they learn to reset their expectations. But I believe it's likely that they move on to other things, right? Because I don't know that they were getting into it for the right reasons anyway. Uh, it was being treated more as kind of a get rich quick scheme. Yeah, time horizon fixes all of that. I feel like if you're willing to wait long enough, which is some of what we're getting at a lot of that will shake off in the meantime. And if you bought a good company to begin with, right, you can't deny that a good company is doing good work and earning good money. Um, and in some in some regards, if people can wait out this market volatility and get to experience what a pullback looks like and invest through it and come to the other side, hopefully that's a good thing as well. And it teaches people like, you've been there, you know, you've you've experienced what pain feels like. Uh, now you don't need to be so shocked and surprised when it inevitably happens again, as it is oft to do every you know decade or so. So the the next piece in terms of the advice that this article gave in terms of how you assess your prediction or your thesis was identify the broad prediction. Uh, and so if you're looking at some sort of a, a secular theme, right, that people are moving to streaming from cable television. Right. I don't know that anybody anybody would argue that that's not going on. Now, who are going to be the winners? Is that going to be, um, you know, kind of your incumbent initial streaming players, or is that going to be one of these new challengers that has come into the market? Is it going to be somebody completely new? Is it a platform that wins? Right. There's lots of questions, but do you still believe that people are moving increasingly to streaming? That's kind of your broad prediction. I've found several times in the last couple of years where I was kind of anchored to the broad prediction and missing the the smaller one. And I'll give you an example. I'll be careful with my words here, but one of the themes that I believe in being uh, kind of the future is telemedicine, right? I think we're increasingly moving to a telemedicine sort of world, right? I thought that that was a big theme where I was missing some underlying things in individual businesses as a result of that. Right. Sometimes you're putting the theme on top of a single company where that's not the only player in the market. Uh, and, and so I think kind of zooming out and looking at the broad prediction and then looking at how does that impact your thesis on the individual company, sometimes those aren't as linked as you might think. Right. The total addressable market might be there, but the individual opportunity, maybe it's not being executed on as well, or there's kind of other competition that is going to soak up some of that demand. Yeah, that was an interesting uh realization for me to kind of re re-unpack uh, or to unpack that thesis again against kind of the broader theme. And sometimes you have a broad theme that, that you fully believe in, but you don't know who the winners are going to be. Betting on a single horse to win the race can be tough because so many people are neck and neck, right? And sometimes you just want to buy a category. You just know that this is the future. Here are the players. Let's 
let's allocate a little bit to all of them. And that's okay too. You know, you don't need to pick the single winner if you believe that there is a broad sweeping change about to happen to some sector. I think my final thought here, and I realize we've been a little bit all over the place with this episode, um, but if you're if you're looking at your portfolio and you're looking to add capital and you're frozen, right? I mean, if, if you're looking at the names that are down and it's got you thinking, uh, I've, I've shaken my confidence in one way or another, just choose an index fund, right? There's, there's nothing wrong with saying, I'm not going to make an individual stock selection right now. But if you've got capital to put to work, putting it into an index fund is an easy, easy way to say, I'm going to continue to believe in the recovery nature of the market as a whole. I'm going to continue to believe that equities are a place to put money. And maybe I need more time or more thought to evaluate the individual names in my portfolio. But that's not a reason not to invest, right? You can always rebalance back out of an index fund into an individual name if you need to or if you decide to. But uh, if you're frozen and you're worried about it and you're you're having trouble making those choices of where to put the money, you can always zoom out even further, right? You can simply choose to buy the market as a whole. While you were talking, I was majorly sidetracked to try to bring it back to Jimmy Buffett and the types of things he invests in and was looking at his diversified portfolio of investments. Wrap us up on Jimmy Buffett, Dan. What, what's he own? All right. So we know he owns Cheeseburger in Paradise, former employer of my colleague, Ross Anderson. So that, that was a partnership with uh, Outback. Are they still around? Because I, I know the one I worked in closed. I don't know. I couldn't tell you, Ross. But we do know that Margaritaville is still around. You Correct. I, I think that was probably the better, uh, the better position brand. I lost a burger eating competition to my friend at a Marga- Margaritaville in Jamaica. Uh, he has invested in the beer industry and Land is an Shark. owner of Landshark. Correct. Uh, Jimmy Buffett has footwear companies, tequila companies. Surprise, surprise. I believe he is in the cannabis space. Uh, he owns part of a horse racing group. Jimmy Buffett finding places to allocate capital. I think he's doing okay. Deeply invested into the entertainment and relaxation industry. Let's let's call it that. That seems like the thesis for him is that people are stressed. They're just looking to have a good time. They are looking to have a good time. I like a good time. Let's make let's make the second half of 2022 a good time, shall we? I'm going to have a good time whether the market goes up or not. I'm I'm committed to that. We can't let this thing uh determine whether or not we're having good days or bad days it's not fun to look at but we hope you're all sticking it out with us and that our rambling thoughts today are even somewhat helpful for you check your balances at outlook.com is the email address for our show we really appreciate everybody out there tuning in and uh, hope that you're doing well enjoy the summer we'll catch you next week (music) 